Welcome to Faith. Thanks for being with us today, whether you are in person, whether you are watching online. Uh, we are launching a brand new series today uh, on the book of Esther, which is really the story of chaos, a queen, and an unseen king. And this is what we call a church-wide series here at Faith. And by that, I mean uh, we're going to start a conversation on Sunday mornings, and then we're going to continue that conversation in our small groups throughout the week. And we're working really hard to make sure that what we do on Sunday mornings is going to be good. Uh, but if you want to get the most out of this series, you need to get plugged into a small group. And so if you haven't done that yet, if you're watching online, you can fill out your digital connection card. Just write small groups there in the comments. And Pastor James and his team, they will get a hold of you about that. Uh, if you are here in person, you can do a connection card, or if you want, you can walk right out these doors after church. To the right is the community station there, and a live person will talk with you and help you get plugged into a group and do that. But um, if you're not in a group, I cannot encourage you enough. There are Zoom groups, there are live groups, everything in between. Get into a group. Uh, you're going to get the most out of this if you do it that way. Now, uh, before we jump into things for today, I want to invite Nicole to come back up here. Uh, if you don't know who Nicole is, uh, Nicole has been serving as our interim worship leader for the last few months, and this is going to be her last Sunday serving in that particular capacity. Uh, we'll see Nicole from time to time, uh, but this last Sunday she's serving in that role. And on behalf of the church, Nicole, Lars, um, thank you. Thank you so much for the incredible job that you have done for the time, the energy, the sacrifice that's meant for your family, for letting me feed your children chocolate every Sunday <laughs> and thus become their favorite pastor. Um, we are grateful. Um, so church, let's just, uh, just show them our appreciation. Isn't mom great? Now, uh, Nicole was filling in for Kat because Kat was on maternity leave. And as chance would have it, Nicole has uh, been found to be with child. Um, so, just keeping it biblical, right? Um, so listen, before you agree to lead worship here at Faith Covenant Church, you should just know the risks, people, all right? So... Um, we want to pray for you, for your family, and again, thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you. All right, Father, thank you for Nicole, for Lars, for their family, uh, just for the ways that they have led in Kat's absence. I am grateful, grateful for them. Father, we just pray you would bless this child uh, that is growing even now in Nicole's womb. We just pray for a healthy, strong baby and just an addition to their home. We pray you would bless them in uh, the ministry to come and where you are calling them next. And we are just grateful to have had them for this season past. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, Nicole. All right. <clears throat> so as we get started today, um, let's start with this question. It's kind of dark, but we're going to go there anyway. Have you ever asked, have you ever been in a spot where you're asking, where in the world is God right now? 
Ever had a time where you were just outdone by your circumstances, outmaneuvered by your fears, overwhelmed by hardship? Maybe you're watching your marriage fall apart right in front of your eyes. Maybe you're watching your child just get another step and another step and another step further from faith. Maybe you are sick and you're praying and you're not getting any better. Maybe it's somebody who you love deeply and you keep praying and they just keep getting sicker. Maybe it had something to do with work. Maybe it had something to do with your finances, something at school. But you ever had a time where life just felt dark? And didn't matter how hard you tried, you couldn't see God, you couldn't hear from God, you, you didn't sense His presence, and you just wondered, where in the world is God right now? See, if you've ever asked this question, well, if you're asking this question right now, the book of Esther is a book for you. See, the book of Esther, it wrestles with this question. And, and in the midst of it all, the, the, even though this book is written thousands of years ago, it is incredibly relevant to our lives, especially if we are wrestling with this question. And it is a book of hope in the midst of a question like this. Now, as relevant as the book is, as much hope as it offers, I do need to issue this warning. The biblical book of Esther is disturbing. This, this is not the flannel graph Sunday school thing you got as a kid, all right? That was nice. But the biblical book of Esther reads a lot more like the Game of Thrones than it does a VeggieTales production. And we're going to go there. Now, I will try and mix in humor and I will try and be silly if you can believe that as we navigate some of that discomfort. But we're going to see it this week and we're going to see it in the weeks to come. This is an uncomfortable book if you really understand what's being written there. In fact, the, the comfort, the discomfort, it begins right at the beginning in chapter 1. As we are introduced to a man named Xerxes. Everybody say Xerxes. Xerxes is the ruler of the known world. The entire population of the known world is beholden to him, including God's people, the Jews, many of them who are living in his capital city. As Esther 1 kicks off, it tells us about this Xerxes who, who rules from about 486 to 465 B.C., rules over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. This is a Xerxes who at the time is ruling in the citadel of Susa. As the, the chapter opens up, the, the writer tries to impress upon us what a big deal this Xerxes is. It starts off by telling us about how vast his kingdom is. This is a man who rules from basically modern-day Ethiopia to modern-day Pakistan. This is about 2.9 million square miles of real estate. He rules over 50 million people. To, to get a sense of how big this is, you, you need to start walking in Atlanta, Georgia, and walk all the way to Los Angeles, California, and then back again just to cover the breadth of this man's kingdom. Now, when you rule a, a piece of real estate this large, you need a military, a vast military, to keep control of it. 
And Xerxes had that. To give you a sense of how big his military was, Xerxes' personal bodyguard alone consisted of 2,000 foot, excuse me, 2,000 um, horsemen, 2,000 lancers, and 10,000 infantry. 14,000 men reserved. Their only job, keep this one man safe. And when you're, when you're taking care of a military and, and real estate of this size, you need a ton of money to do that. And Xerxes had it. When you read through the first chapter of the book of Esther, there's all this weird stuff that they're listing off. And you're like, what is the deal with this? That's the 5th century way of letting you know how rich this man was. Give you some examples that relate a little bit better to today. So Xerxes eventually, he's going to take Persia to war against the Greeks. And it's, it's not going to go well for him. And at one point, the, the, the Persians are retreating because they've lost the battle with Greece. And, and they leave their encampment behind. And, the, and the, the Greeks roll in. And when they find this abandoned Persian encampment, they don't find supplies. They don't find food. They don't find weapons. They don't find clothing. They find furniture. They find couches made of silver and gold. When Xerxes went to war and brought furniture to his encampments, he brought couches made of silver and gold and he just abandoned them there. In fact, years later, when the, the Greeks win the war, Alexander the Great rolls into the citadel of Susa. He finds $55 billion worth of, billion dollars worth of gold bullion about 270 million tons of minted coin. Familiar with the phrase, richer than God? That's Xerxes. All right? In fact, when, when you talk about Xerxes and you talk about God, 5th century Persians and Xerxes himself, they, they, they thought of him as being divine. When, when you walked into Susa and you walked up to the palace, etched right into the foundation stones of the palace, you found this. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big, far-reaching earth. This is not a man with low self-esteem, all right? <laughs> well, one author, to try and capture how Xerxes in the 5th century B.C. Persians thought of him, he wrote this. He said, The citadel of Susa loomed over the city. The gates were called the gates of the world because what issued from the palace shaped the world. In their minds, a God lived there. A God lived there and he sat on a high throne surrounded by slaves and servants and thousands of works of arts that celebrated him and his divinity. Now, what is a man who has unlimited power, unlimited influence, unlimited wealth at his disposal? What's he going to do with it? How is he going to steward that kind of responsibility and control? Well, we're told in Esther chapter 1, this is what he does. In the third year of his reign, he, he being Xerxes, gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for a full 
180 days, he displayed his vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. A man who has everything throws the party. Not a party, the party. For six months straight, he parties with the most important people in his kingdom and shows off all that he has. Now, ancient writings tell us that at Xerxes' party, you could get all the food, all of the booze, and all of the sex that you wanted. When you think Xerxes' party, you, you, you want to think Woodstock, Underground Rave, Beer Fest, Hash Bash, Burning Man, Amsterdam Unleashed, and you still got nothing. Xerxes' party is the kind of party Snoop Dogg would come rolling in. You'd be like, Xerxes, whoa. <laughs> You got to turn this back a notch or two. Dog, this is beyond gangster. I can't even handle this, right? Now, why would Xerxes throw a party like this? It's really a pep rally. Again, he's getting ready to go to war against Greece. He's got the most important people in the kingdom. People who support he's going to want for this war. And he's trying to, commun he's trying to communicate a message. As, as he's making sure they see that his table and his bank accounts and his harem are overflowing, the message is simply this. Look at me. Look at my life. Look at how I live day in and day out. Go to war against the Greeks with me. And you could have this kind of life too. My existence could be your existence Go to war against the Greeks. We'll take their stuff. We'll make it our stuff. Who's with me? That's the message. That's the point of the party. Now, after partying like this for six months straight, what does Xerxes do? He throws another party. Because that's the kind of man we're dealing with here. Now, the second party's a little more dialed down, right? The second party is only a week long. And it's for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. It's basically the staff party for the first party, right? All the folks who worked the first party now get to party at the second party. And we're told that the second party, that each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, all right? In ancient Persia, the way it worked is when Xerxes drinks, then you can drink. If he's not drinking, you can't drink. In this instance, the king instructed the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. In other words, you have a week-long open bar here. Now, you know what happens at an open bar? Right? Inevitably, at every open bar, you have at least one, sometimes more, but you have at least one person who slides back about three spaces on the evolutionary scale as they drink way more than they have any business drinking, right? Happens every open bar. You always see this. You just watch for it. You're at the wedding. Uncle Allie just loses it, right? In this instance, it happens at Xerxes' party. It's just Xerxes who's doing the sliding on that scale. We read 
that Xerxes was high, on, high in spirits from wine, right? In other words, Xerxes is drunk. He is way too loud, make everybody else in the room uncomfortable, out of control, drunk. He is so drunk that he thinks it's a good idea to order the eunuchs to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, in case you're not picking up what the writer's putting down here, let me just break it down for you. And we're going to be blunt, so buckle up. All right? Xerxes had enough to drink that he orders Vashti to come. Not because he wants to hear her opinions on matters of state. Not because he really enjoys her company and wants to spend some time with her. No. He orders her to come and strut her stuff before the drunken populace of the city, wearing her crown and only her crown. And you're like, why would he do that? This is just a continuation of the message he's been sending for the last six months. It's just nuanced slightly differently. The message is simple. See how hot my wife looks? Go to war against the Greeks. Who knows, you could get a wife as foxy as mine. This is the message he's sending to the populace. The message that Vashti gets is a little bit different. The message she receives is, woman, you are nothing more than a trophy in my case. Your job is to please me, to make me look potent, to make me look powerful. Ladies, isn't that the, the message you just long to hear from your husbands, right? <laughs> now, it's at this point that the story takes kind of an unexpected twist. Because here we have Xerxes, ruler of the known world. When, when he gives orders, they are commands. We, he, this is a man who is known for being unpredictable and cruel. There is no limit to his power, his wealth, his influence. And Vashti, in a world where women are considered little better than property, she does the unthinkable. She tells Xerxes no. She tells him no. She stands up to him in front of everyone he has just spent the last six months trying to impress. So now Xerxes has a problem, right? I mean, here you have big, strong, billionaire Xerxes, ruler of 127 provinces, mighty overlord of the known world, and he's about to be undone in front of his wife. He has spent the last 187 days whining and dining and flexing his muscles, and he's going to have his wife show him up in front of his drinking buddies Oh no, this is never going to do. And so Xerxes, he becomes furious. And he's like, woman, I told you to come, and you didn't come. Don't you know who I am? Now, again, this book is so relevant. 
How many of you guys have a woman that just will not obey you? Mm -hmm. Thank you in the back, Fred Menkel. I knew I was going to get somebody, right? You know, on the live stream, Mark Lada, I see you, all right? You know. <laughs> Told you we're going to have fun with this, all right? But he's like, listen, you need to come. And she's like, she, she says to him, I don't care who you are. I am not, I am not, I am not coming in there naked so you and your drunken buddies can oogle at me. This is not going to happen. And so Xerxes is like, I don't, what am I going to do here? So he does what a, any good Persian king would do. We read, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matter of the law and justice, because now we've got a social justice issue here, right? He spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. You know what he does? He gets a bunch of men together to figure this out. Gathers his boys, gets his posse together. And he's like, what am I going to do with this woman? Like, I told her to come, and she said, no, how is this going to work if she doesn't do what I say? Now, Xerxes' brain trust, all right, they are, they're going to analyze the problem for him, all right, and then they're going to offer a threefold solution. And if you think things have been disturbing up until this point, just buckle up, all right? It's going to get worse, all right? So here's their analysis. They say to him, Queen Vashti has done wrong. Not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples and all the provinces of King Xerxes. Right? This is a national crisis here. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Vashti to be brought in before him and she wouldn't come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility have heard about the queen's conduct and they will conduct, they will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to disrespect and discord. So his advisors, they're analyzing the problem. They're like, Xerxes, this problem is way bigger than you, man. Right. Like, like women all over the kingdom, they're going to hear about what happened tonight. They're going to hear that you said, come, and she said, no. And women are going to start to think, listen, if the pastor's wife doesn't have to do what he says, I mean, <laughs> if the king's wife doesn't have to do what he says, then we don't have to do what our husbands say. Xerxes, you got to rein this in, man. We can't have wives thinking for themselves. We can't have daughters envisioning lives outside of the kitchen. We, we do not need a feminist movement in, in this country. We don't need rebellious wives in this kingdom. We don't need women thinking for themselves in the land. And I'm going to stop now before you throw things at me, all right? <laughs> and before you get upset and write that nasty connection card, we're just exegeting the passage, okay? All right? <laughs> But this is the analysis that they offer, right? And so after offering this analysis, they then offer a threefold solution. So part one, they say, therefore, 
If it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. In other words, your spouse isn't what you want them to be, so kick them to the curb. You got a domestic issue? This is why we have divorce. Get rid of them. That's part one. Part two, also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Kick your current spouse to the curb and get you a new model, a better model. And by better, we mean obedient. And then part three, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up, right? In other words, we are going to legislate, we're going to produce legislation to impose on others, Xerxes, what you couldn't achieve by natural means in your own family. And, and then what we're going to do, we're going to put this law out there and we're going to show these women there are consequences to disrespecting your man. Amen. That's right. Thank you. Right. We're going to settle thousands of domestic disputes, right? You know, we keep these crazy Vashti ideas from getting out of control. So this is their analysis. This is their solution. And how is Xerxes going to respond to this? Well, we're told the king and his nobles they were pleased with this advice. <laughs> Shocker, right? Right? So they, they, they email, they text, they Twitter, they Facebook message, they snail mail. They send it all over the kingdom in every language known to man. And Xerxes is communicating to his populace, hey, I am not, gentlemen, I'm not going to have my woman disrespect me. And I'm not going to have your woman disrespect you either. Right? In fact, his edict ends this way. At the very end of the edict, we read that every man should be ruler over his own household, right? And so they, they begin to have campaigns all over the country. You know, they, they make t-shirts and they pass them out at the campaigns. The men chant the slogan, every man rules his house, right? Every man rules his house. Men of faith coming to church, every man. Bunch of men afraid to speak up in church. Uh -huh. <laughs> now here's this crazy. That's how the chapter ends. That's the beginning of the story. So let me summarize. Esther chapter 1 opens up to paint a picture for us of the world that God's people are living in. A world ruled by a power-hungry, war-mongering, self-absorbed political leader. A world where might makes right, where wealth wins, and where the wicked rule. A world full of domestic issues where the best solution 
is kick your partner to the curb and get you a new one. A world where women are objectified, where misogyny reigns, and where a woman's greatest purpose is to please her man. This is the world of Esther chapter 1. And again, I would contend this book is incredibly relatable. Think about our world. Do we have self-absorbed political leaders? Check. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. We got them on both sides. Do we, do we have a world where if you're influential enough, rich enough, nasty enough, you can control the outcomes? Yep, we got that. We have a world full of domestic issues where the solutions offered are just plain stupid. Got that covered. Do we have a world full of abuse and misogyny? Yep. You see, the book of Esther was written thousands of years ago. And yet the details that are going to shape this story, you could pull them right out of today's headlines. As God's people, the Jews, are living there in Susa, under Xerxes' thumb, they are asking, where in the world is God right now? With all this debauchery on display, they have no sense of God's voice, of his action, or of his presence. Life just seems dark. Just dark. And they're wondering, where in the world is God right now? Now, as this book continues to unfold in the chapters and the weeks to come, we're going to see the writer answer this question. But the writer's going to do so in a unique way. You may or may not know this, but in the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. You won't find his name there one time. There are 190 plus references to the king of Persia and not one to the king of heaven. And yet I would contend that the writer does this on purpose. It's the writer's unique way of answering this question and trying to teach us some things about life and about God. See, as the book of Esther opens up, it seems like this is just a story about a crazy, power-mongering, dirty old man. But as the story continues to unfold, we're going to see it's actually a story about how God is always providentially at work in his people's lives, no matter how life seems to be unfolding in the moment. Right at the beginning, we're going to meet Esther next week, right at the beginning. It's, it's like, this is my life, where's God? I can't see anything but this crazy nutcase Xerxes sitting on his throne. What she's going to discover is that her God, your God, is always providentially at work, no matter how life seems to look in the moment. As this book continues to unfold, we're going to see this is a story about how even when we don't see God, 
he's still there. It's a book all about how even though we can't sense God and he's, he's off in the background, he is at work directing things and the outcomes in the foreground. It's a book that's meant to teach us that no matter how dark life becomes, God has not abandoned us. The writer wants us to understand God does not abandon his people. No matter how dark their circumstances are, no matter how compromised their own hearts become in the process, no matter how hidden he may seem to be in the moment, he does not abandon his people. So his name, you won't find it on the pages, but he's there. Author Max Lucado, in his book, You Are Made for This Moment, he tries to capture what we've been talking about this way. He writes, God has been known to intervene dramatically at times, yet for every divine shout, there are a million whispers. The book of Esther relates the story of our whispering God, who in unseen and inscrutable ways superintends all the actions and circumstances of his people. He need not be loud to be strong. He need not cast a shadow to be present. God is still eloquent in his seeming silence and still active when he appears distant. If God seems absent in your life, this is the book for you. Longtime past preacher, Charles Spurgeon, tries to express this idea this way. He writes, I have seen portraits bearing the name of persons for whom they were intended, and they certainly needed them. Now, Spurgeon's right into a world where people would commission an artist to paint a portrait of somebody in the family. He's, he's basically saying, hey, sometimes the artist does a crummy job. Like if you didn't write the name on the bottom of that picture, you could hang it on the wall and nobody would know who they were dealing with. Okay? So modern day example of this. Your child, your grandchild, whatever, they're, they're, they're there in the living room, they got the paper, they got the crayons, they're working hard. right? And they bring you this thing. Some stick figure, barely human-like concoction, right? And they're all proud as can be. And they hand it to you. And you humor them and you say, well, who, who is that, sweetheart? That's you, mommy. That's you, grandpa. Right? And what do you do with that precious little work of art? Right into the kitchen, right? Onto the refrigerator. But if you don't write the name of the person on that little piece of art there, anybody else coming into the kitchen after you thinks you just got leftover Halloween decorations or something there, right? Spurgeon says, I have seen portraits bearing the name of persons for whom they were intended, and they certainly needed them. But we have all seen others which require no name because they were such a striking likeness that the moment you looked upon them, you knew them. We're going to read this book. And God's name isn't going to be written on the pages. But the further in we go, 
the more clear his face is going to become. We're going to read and be like, I think I recognize that guy. Well, that, that's got to be him. There is no denying that is the face of God shining through the pages, whether his name is written on them or not. And the writer writes the way that he or she does so that we would know that even when God appears to be absent from the circumstances of our lives, he is still at work. And if we'll just hold on to that hope, a day's going to come where we see his face clear as can be, whether his name was written on the circumstances at the time or not. And so we want to invite you to join us over the next five weeks as we watch God work in the midst of incredible brokenness, as we see him use the kind of people we would never expect him to use, and as he providentially brings about beauty and redemption in the midst of it all. And it's my hope, it's my prayer, that in the weeks to come, we are going to see that what was true for Esther then, it's true for you and it's true for me now. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you just for this book. A book that is so relevant to the world that we live in, to the lives that we experience. Father, just for those of us who are here today and we're, and we're just we're wrestling with that question, where in the world are you right now? God, give us faith to see. Give us faith to see that even though we don't sense you in the foreground, you are there in the background. Help us to, help us to hold on to faith. To know, even if we can't find your name written in the present circumstances, your face is there. You haven't abandoned us. No matter how dark our circumstances you have not abandoned us, no matter how compromised our hearts have become. If we will hold on tight, we will see your providence, we will see your beauty, we will see your redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.